0: Well I uh, thank you for your prayers while I was gone. I did about a week of study and uh, getting ready for the series that we're starting today, and fully prepared. And then I spent a couple weeks in Cleveland, where I'm from, with my uh, wife and children, and we kind of just did the rounds, seeing family. And uh, you know, my church back there, um, I left uh, doesn't has found a senior pastor yet, and so I still have a lot of connections there. And when I got there, somebody asked me if I'd be willing to do a funeral for somebody who passed away, and, and obviously I said. Yes, there's some dear friends of mine that I know, and uh, yet I didn't even bring any long pants with me. You ever done that when you traveled? I mean, I don't travel with a suit, you know, and so I I went to Kohl's, and it was really funny. I went to just get a suit off the rack, and I said, you guys like, you know, have a suit for a guy like me, and she looks at me, and she goes, you're just like every other 40-year-old, 38-30, right? We got plenty of them. (laughs) I was like, you know, what do you make of that? You know, like, all right, I need to lose weight, you know, but... uh, Reminded me a few years before when uh, Kim and I went to a tailor to get a suit made and uh, not made but just you know tailored and a um, guy was fitting me and put on a coat that was too small and he goes ooh you need an athletic fit and I uh, I looked at Kim and I said you hear that an athletic fit and she goes they used to call that portly Jamie don't uh, you know I thought oh, is not that great so uh, God God keeps you humble doesn't he and uh, just so many ways. We are, uh, as Pat mentioned, we're starting a new series here and um, I'm so excited about this. It's on uh, First Peter and uh, I've been preparing for about six months now in a couple different venues doing background research and exegesis and, you know, we're going to take our time a little bit through this series. We're not going to rush it as we sometimes do going through books of the Bible and, uh, for instance, today we're going to look at just the first two verses and, and my goal is so that we can kind of master a book. Would you like to do that to get done after a few months of, of saying, boy, we spent some time in First Peter parking in front of uh, many of the passages, kind of honoring the thought breaks that the New Testament writers have. And, and it's I've entitled it this, The People of God. And, and I think you're really going to like this, because just as, as you have your own personal identity of what makes you, you, you know, created in the image of God and redeemed and and then the job that you have and where you live and who your kids are and all that stuff and your personality and temperament um god says that the church has an identity we have an identity of who we are as the people of god and as you're going to see much of first peter is helping us cement and understand our identity and so to get you thinking before we pray here just about the church and what the church is look up here on the screen and then i'm going to pray for us and we're going to dive right in When most people think of the church, their first thought is about a building. And in this town, there's a church on every corner. When I think about the church, I grew up in a very conservative church, so I think more that it's more like a house of rules. When I think of the church, I think of the programs, the kids' ministry, the women's ministry. Oh, and the music and the pastor has to be really good. It's funny, because my brother is the exact opposite. In fact, he doesn't like that organized religion or the institution. He laughs, because he says when he's out camping in the woods, he feels closer to God than he ever did sitting in a pew. The real difference with the church that I go to today, it's a place that I can connect and get together with friends, the social aspect. It's so much better to talk about issues of life with friends at church than it, than it is with colleagues or friends at work. When I think of all the issues my family has to face on a daily basis, my biggest question is, is the church even relevant? Father God, uh, if we were to quiz people here this morning, we'd find out that, that many of us have all different kinds of opinions on what the church is, as we've just seen everything from a building to programs to social gatherings to relevant structures, what have you, that Father, uh, so many things in our minds that we think of when we think of church, and uh, fathers, we're going to learn today. If we're not careful, we can sometimes get off on rabbit trails of what we think our identity is that don't maybe get to the core of what you've said we are. So, God, as we plumb the depths today of just what you have said about the church and who we are as the people of God, may we be renewed, may we be fired up as to what you've declared about us and what our identity really is. We thank you for this time together. To what you're going to say in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, many of you might not know this, or maybe you do know this, but the, the, the number one white-collar crime in America today is identity theft. It's identity theft. Maybe you knew that I didn't, so I was reading an article a few years ago that when it comes to all the different white-collar crimes that we have today, like insurance fraud and property crime and health and safety violations, even drug trafficking, none of those are costing our country as much as identity theft. So check this out, over the last five years there's been an average of nine to ten million cases of identity theft each year, racking up a staggering fifty billion dollars in stolen assets each year in our country, of which more than $5 billion is paid directly by unsuspecting consumers, did I mention, each year in our country. And according to the Gartner Group, which monitors activity like this closely, only about 1 in 700 identity theft crimes ever lead to a conviction. One in 700. I mean, it's a staggering problem in our country today, and it's a relatively simple crime. Someone or a group of someones obtains personal information about you, you know, things like your social security number, your address, phone numbers, birth date, even financial information like your credit card number or your, or your uh, bank account numbers. And they use this information to pose as you digitally and electronically as they secure utilities in your name, take out loans, buy assets with your credit card, and or mess with your tax status. So, for instance, it's a man who was indicted a few years back in Miami, Florida, for filing false federal tax returns in the names of 614 Florida state prisoners totaling more than $3 million in refunds. That's identity theft. Or it's the company a few years ago that self-confessedly realized that their mainframe computers had been hacked, and they found that over 40 million Visa, MasterCard, Discover, and American Express numbers, including the pins— had been stolen. 40 million of them It made the national press. Or when a large information broker a few years ago sold more than 145,000 social security numbers to a con- company, they do that all the time, only to find out that this company was a fake company and that people were going to use these numbers for ID theft purposes. It's called identity theft, folks. It's someone becoming you financially and wreaking untold havoc in your life as a result. And some, if not many of you, have had experiences, some big, some small, when it comes to this idea of identity theft. We can all relate to it. And though this is a new thing in our increasingly digital electronic age, the stark reality is is that a more serious identity theft has been going on for generations now, one that I would submit to you makes our current economic one look like a walk in the park. You see, about 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked this earth. And as many of us know he came here so that he could pave the way for us to know God in a highly personal and eternal way through his death on a cross for our sins and then as many of you also know before he left he established his church complete with a God infused identity of who we are and what we're to be about and so much if not all of the New Testament outlines for us what the church is about all 27 books in some way or another, mention the church and help us understand our identity, particularly the book that we're going to be looking at this summer and fall here at Scottsdale Bible, the book of 1 Peter. And yet what happens, if we're, if we're not very careful, is that it's easy for the church to get her identity stolen by a world, for instance, that is not our home, or by a culture that's not always friendly to our values, or by internal leaders who are hazy about what the church should be and be about. Or even by well-meaning members, I have found, who have agendas of their own. Have you ever noticed that? But not always agendas that are the agendas of Jesus and that the Bible lays out. And before you know it, when these things happen, the church is in the middle of a massive identity crisis, forgetting who she really is and what God wants her to be about. It's identity theft in the most literal and personal sense, the church losing the God-given identity that Jesus and his original followers so desperately wanted us to have. And let's be honest, many of us have been in church scenarios or in churches ourselves where we've sensed this, haven't we? Where we've sensed that the church is not firing on all eight cylinders, that something is missing. She doesn't really understand who she is and what she is about. And so this brings us to the letter of 1 Peter. Peter. A letter that's going to help us understand our identity here at Scottsdale Bible as part of the universal church of Jesus Christ. Many of you remember the Apostle Peter. You do. And you liked him, if I don't miss my guess. I find that a lot of Christians like Peter because we can identify with him with all of his discipleship failures. Give me a head nod if you know what I'm talking about. Like when he was trying to walk on water and started to sink because of his lack of faith and trust in Christ. Or how about when he recognized Jesus for who he was as the incarnate Son of God? But then, in the very next sentence, he makes a statement that is more about his agenda than Jesus' agenda. And Jesus looks at him and says, "Get behind me, Satan, because you don't have in mind the things of God but the things of man." I mean, how would you like it if Jesus said that to you, or even Jesus's, or even Peter's most probably biggest failure when he denied Jesus three times, totally renouncing? that he ever knew him or followed him because he was afraid of persecution and of following Jesus into rough waters. I mean, Peter is the kind of guy that many of us can relate to because we know our own lives and the failures that we've had as well. And yet Peter is also one, and this is going to help us a lot over the next few weeks here, who was the first to recognize this thing called the church and challenge the other disciples to establish its God-given and God-infused identity. You might remember he was one on the day of Pentecost who led the way as the church was set up. And he went on to become one of the most passionate and faithful followers of Jesus who would champion the church around every corner. And in his first of two New Testament letters that he wrote, he is writing to a relatively unknown group of churches. It's fascinating. When it lists the churches you'll see here in a minute that he's writing to, like who knows what these churches were about. Areas like Bithynia and Pontus and Cappadocia, I mean, you can search the New Testament. You don't know anything about these churches. Paul doesn't mention them. We don't have any evidence Peter was there. But we know that, that they must have had churches there because Peter is writing to them. And he's writing what commentators call a general letter of encouragement. In other words, he's just encouraging them to keep on keeping on, to be the church, to follow Christ and obey him, even in the midst of their hostile setting. In a very real sense, he's writing to them about how to not let their identity as a church be stolen by a runaway culture or even by careless leaders. And in just the two verses, opening verses of 1 Peter 1, that's all we're going to look at today, he shares with them, and by extension us, no less than four key identity markers of what it means to be the church, of what it means to be the people of God. Four things that marked them back then and us today as the people of God together it, collectively as the church and so let's look at these here's the first one and that is that peter tells us that the church is a group of people living and functioning in a world and culture that is not our home boys this going to be relevant for you and i today we're a group of people living and functioning in a world and culture and here's the key that's not our home and so look at how peter starts off this whole letter look at verse one he says peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Focus on that little phrase, elect exiles of the dispersion. We'll get to that word elect here in just a few minutes, but that phrase exiles of the dispersion is a phrase loaded with meaning for Peter's first century audience back then. You see, it's almost a literal quote of a Jewish phrase that was used back then to refer to how the Jewish people had been dispersed from their homeland in Jerusalem and Israel due to war and captivity, and now we're living in very far-off places like Persia, remember the book of Esther, and other outlying areas in the Middle East. It's a phrase that they all knew back then that referred to how the Jewish people, where many of them were living in not their rightful home, they were living abroad, so to speak, not by their own choice, in foreign and not so friendly places. And so don't miss that what Peter is doing here then is he's taking this common Jewish phrase and he's using it of Christians to refer to the fact that Christians now are a group of people living in a world that's not our home. We're exiles in a strange place, living here in our world and in our respective cultures, but longing for our real home, which is eternity face-to-face with God. I like how the NIV translates the same passage. It says we are God's elect strangers in the world. Like that, strangers in the world. Or as the NASB translation puts it, those who reside as aliens. We're legal aliens in this world. That's what God is saying about who who you and I are. I love how Peter Davids, who's probably one of the foremost experts on 1 Peter Day, among some other scholars, how he says it. Look up here on the screen. He says, here in Peter, we find a natural transfer of one of the titles of Israel to the church. He says, the church consists of communities of people living outside their native land, which is not Jerusalem or Palestine, but the heavenly city. Their life on earth is temporary. They're pilgrims, foreigners those who belong to heaven. And so if you're catching this at all here this morning, don't miss the profound implications then. And that is that when it comes to our shared identity as followers of Jesus, one of the first things he tells us is that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. And by all means, we are never to see this place or or our culture as our final destination. And certainly, we're not to get too comfortable in this place. And i got to tell you, when I start to understand this, folks, when I start to understand what it really means to be an exile in a strange place, which is what God declares us to be, I get scared at how the church has ended up in America today. Don't you? Because i got to tell you, we are very comfortable in our cultural setting here today. Can you own that? We are. I mean, how do I know that is true? Well, our words give us away. I mean, we whine. Have you ever noticed that as Christians? We whine when things don't go our way, when bad things happen to God's people. And we're surprised when our culture doesn't share our values or when they even come against us and what they see as our Victorian or even archaic moral lifestyle. And then to add insult to injury here in America, we devote an undue amount of time and energy to securing comfort and relief in response to our worldly problems. I mean, the average evangelical today, when we confront a problem, I mean, we immediately just run to whatever worldly system we can find to help solve our problem, rather than maybe falling back on things like prayer and selfless living and bolstering our faith, things that the Word of God talks about. I mean, let's be frank. Many of us today are more concerned about our 401K or our economy or the next political election, more so than we are whether God's kingdom is reigning supreme in our hearts even in our church. We're addicted to comfort. We're addicted to this world. We don't see ourselves as exiles. I love how Tim Bascom in his book, The Comfort Trap, puts it. I mean, this is almost indicting. He he says, we're too comfortable to be spiritual. We think we'll be able to pursue God better without danger or hardship. And yet it works in just the opposite way. He says, nothing is more difficult than to grow spiritually when you're comfortable and he's right and god knows this folks and so he calls us he labels us exiles and he tells us that this world is not our home that we're just passing through and so the first thing that you need to know about your identity as a follower of jesus now part of this thing called the church is in a very positive way then your sights are supposed to be set on eternity your sights are to be learn how to think eternally in your thinking to think with an eternal mindset To think in such a way about your job, your kids, your decision, your culture, your finances, your marriage. Any decision you make your entire life, you now consider from the vantage point of who God is and what he says about your ultimate destination. Not simply from the vantage point of this world and its temporal nature. Why? Because this world isn't your home. You were made for another place. And the first thing that marks you as a person of God and us as the people of God is the fact that we're exiles made for eternity. Now, with this said, and going even deeper into this new identity we have, this leads to a second key identity marker that helps us now kind of fill in some of the blanks here. And this is also what makes us us, and that is that the church is also a group of people chosen by God then and under his care and sovereignty. We're chosen by God, not just exiles, but chosen and under his care and sovereignty. Look again at how verse 1 and into verse 2 communicates this to us. Peter says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And I'm telling you folks, if ever there was a loaded phrase in the Bible, this is it. I mean pregnant with meaning. Two key things that you don't want to miss going on here. First, it says that as part of God's church, we are elect. Do you see that word there? Loaded term, elect. This word in the original Greek language that the New Testament was written in literally means chosen. That's how the New American Standard Bible uh, translates it, chosen. And get this, in all of its usages in the New Testament, it always carries with it a twofold sense of God being the one who does the choosing not you, and not because of anything that you've done or not done, God is the one who does the choosing based on his will and desire, as well as secondly, that when God does the choosing, it carries with it some profound blessings and, incur- and privileges. And so don't miss what is contained in this word elect here. It means that God chose you, not the other way around, though it might seem like that. He chose you because of his will and purposes and in choosing you he's brought some blessings and privileges into your life and just pausing here for a minute can i give you a great challenge i find that because there's a lot of mystery when it comes to this thing called election in other words how does it fit in with our will and with human freedom and with our choice and things like that because of all the mystery that surrounds that we sometimes tend to to end up watering down the fact that God has chosen us. Have you ever noticed that? In other words, what we do is is we try to explain away with our rational minds how God could be the one who chooses given our will and our choice. And though I think it's wonderful that we try to rationally understand that, and i got sermons that I can share with you someday that might help us understand this a little bit better. The reality is, is that at the end of the day, you won't escape this one truth. He chose you. He chose you. And no matter how you parse it out, with all the other things around it, the scriptures over and over again say he chose you because he decided to choose you, his will and desire, and guess what? It carries with it some wonderful privileges and blessings. And what are these privileges and blessings? That's the second thing you need to know. And that is that Peter here is telling us that God's choosing of us is 100% founded upon his fatherly love and sovereign care over our lives that's what he tells us it's fascinating what it says there in the beginning of verse 2 according to the foreknowledge of God the Father Wayne Grudem yes yes our Wayne Grudem here who's written a commentary in first Peter points out that this phrase is the only verbal phrase up to this point in verses 1 and 2 according to God's foreknowledge that's a verbal phrase and it's the first one that appears which simply means that it, everything that refers back to before that It is referring back to there. It's modifying, if you will. I know that verbs don't modify things, but it's referring back to being chosen, to being exiled, even to the specific circumstances in their life. What it's suggesting there is that all of that happened because of God's foreknowledge and even his care. In fact, listen to how Wayne says this in his commentary. This is good stuff. Look up here on the screen. He says this implies that their status as sojourners, their privileges as God's chosen people, even their hostile environment in Pontus and Galatia, etc., were all known before by God before the world began. All came about in accordance with his foreknowledge, and thus we may conclude all were in accordance with his fatherly love for his own people. Wow. Do you get what he's suggesting here, folks? God foreknew all of it. And not only that, he ordained it and in his complete control in the midst of it all. The fact that you're in exile, the fact that you have been chosen to know him and be a part of his church, even the fact of the circumstances that you're in right now, whether they're good or bad, friendly or hostile, God and his sovereign watch care built upon his fatherly love is over it all. So what's your identity as a follower of Christ? What's our identity as a church? The fact that we have been chosen and he is sovereign in his choosing and he's sovereign in control in our lives. Uh, I want to share with you a true story that might help you see how maybe the sovereignty of God can work over the long haul in our lives. I found this kind of fascinating. About a hundred years ago a tornado struck the prairies of Minnesota and as you can imagine many were killed and hundreds were injured and and one small town was almost completely demolished. And in the midst of this disaster, an elderly British surgeon and his two medically trained sons worked almost around the clock to help people in that catastrophic, stricken situation, bandaging wounds and setting broken limbs. And their heroic work didn't go unnoticed. Their excellence as physicians and their selflessness in serving others kind of created a need among the tornado victims, and, and they had some financial backing for many people in that town to build a hospital, provided if they stayed and took charge. And so the men agreed, and in 1889, they founded a clinic that soon attracted national attention. The city, as you might have guessed, was Rochester, Minnesota. The doctor's name, the elderly one, was William W. Mayo, and his sons were William J. and Charles Mayo. And the clinic became known as the Mayo Clinic. It now consists of over 500 physicians treating more than 200,000 people a year, and they even have offices here in Scottsdale. Have you noticed that? So let me ask a hand raise. How many of you have ever been serviced or been at the Mayo Clinic here in Scottsdale? Let's see a hand. Look around. Wow. I mean, a lot of us here. And so here's the point. I'm sure that if you asked citizens of Minnesota about the Rochester tornado at that time, they would have said it was all about death and destruction and unqualified disaster. Amen? But in the perspective of a better than a more than a century, and in the hands of a sovereign and creative God he used that tornado to bring life and help and healing to millions of people including many of you. I mean it's fascinating when Larry Anderson got so sick last year he was in the Mayo Clinic. I visited Dale Galloway after a big heart attack he had in the Mayo Clinic and I'm just always amazed at how God uses modern science, and now even a place like the Mayo Clinic, to bring hope and comfort and help to our lives. Who would have thought that a tornado that they all saw as bad 100 years ago would turn into such a a wonderfully helpful thing for us today? And folks, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, the reality is you look around, and in your life, God is so incredibly sovereign. I love how Rick Warren, pastor at Saddleback, says it. He said, God, says, God never wastes a hurt. You like that? God never wastes a hurt. There are no accidents in your life. There's nothing that can happen as a follower of Jesus Christ that is outside of his purview, outside of his care, outside of his sovereignty. He is that much in control of your life. And please allow this to sink in as a significant part of your identity. He is that much in control of your life. And so who are we as the people of God? We're exiles, strangers just passing through, careful to not get too comfortable here or to see this place as our final destination. And then we're chosen, elect of God and completely under his care and sovereignty. And yet that's not all. There's a third identity marker that Peter Lays out for us here in these opening verses of, her letter, of his letter, and this one gets down to the core of it all. We're drilling down to the center now, and that is simply that the church is a group of people forever forgiven by following Jesus Christ. Now we're getting somewhere. We're a group of people whose identity is of those who are forgiven because we're followers of Jesus Christ. Now look at how verse 2 goes on to say this and then wraps up. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now get this, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so obviously here it's talking about a triune formula, right? I mean, he's mentioning the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, right off the bat. But notice that when he gets to mentioning Jesus there, he adds a phrase there for sprinkling with his blood. This is an interesting phrase, almost eerie if you don't understand much about the New Testament or the Old. And so we've got to wrestle with for a second here, what does it mean when he says sprinkling with his blood? And almost certainly, we know that what Peter was probably thinking about, almost certainly was thinking about, was Jesus' sacrificial death on a cross for our sins, amen? I mean, core to New Testament theology is the fact that Jesus went to the cross, gave his life, And in shedding his blood in this way, he paid the price that our sin and guilt demanded so that we might be brought to God and forgiven of our sin before him. This is almost surely what Peter had in mind. But there's an added touch here that you don't want to miss, contained in the words that Peter uses here, and it all centers around that word sprinkling. Do you see that there? Sprinkling with his blood. Because you can search the New Testament and you'll hardly ever find, in fact, there's only one other instance, and that's in Hebrews 12, of where Peter uses, or anybody uses this image of sprinkling. I mean, it's a totally foreign phrase or word picture to even use of the blood or cross of Jesus. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what, what could Peter have been thinking when he talked about sprinkling with his blood? And to answer this, we need to go to the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament contains multiple uses of this word sprinkling and multiple images of what the sprinkling might be about. And what some commentators suggest is probably the most central and core illustration that Peter was thinking of is found in Leviticus chapter 14 verses 6 to 7. This is amazing. Now listen to what it says here and see if you can mentally picture what the sprinkling might be about. Leviticus 14, 6 and 7. It says, he shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. Problem with a verse like this is that when most of us are reading it through our Bible in one year, you know, I read the Bible in one year, you read something like that and you think, I don't get that. Next, and you move right on, right? And so why don't we pause for just a minute here, park in front of this, and try to understand what's going on here, because I'm telling you, this is exciting stuff. Basically what it's saying here in Leviticus 14 is that it is a way for God to bring healing and wholeness to those who were suffering with that terrible disease of leprosy in Old Testament times, is that they would dip a live bird into the blood of a sacrificed bird, and sprinkle the blood seven times over the sick person. And notice then the described result. It says the person would be clean. What a great word. Wrestle with that a minute. Clean. He's got blood sprinkled all over him. How would he be clean? He'd be clean because he was healed. And so he wouldn't be thinking about blood. He'd be thinking, my leprosy is gone. I'm healed. I'm clean. What an awesome life-giving word. And then, keeping that image going, the living bird would be let go, free to fly in an open field. What a picture. A man who feels clean with a new lease on life and a bird flying free in an open field. All because of sprinkled blood that God empowered and worked through. That's the picture that Leviticus 14 gives us. And this was the picture that Peter most likely had in mind when he writes to us here about the sprinkled blood of Christ. And so could it be that he wants us to see our forgiveness as the kind that cleanses us completely and causes our soul to want to soar like a bird flying free in an open field? Could that be what Peter is trying to say to us? That before you were trapped in your sins, your identity was a sinner. Your identity was of somebody who was stuck. You tried to do good, but you couldn't. And so the reality is, is that now that Christ has come and his blood is sprinkled over your life, he's saying you're cleansed, you're free, sore, go and fly. And all I know, folks, is that for any of us who have had this experience, I mean, I have, where I felt that my sins are forgiven, it's the most freeing, liberating thing you ever experienced this side of heaven. I mean, forgiveness is like a bomb, it's a cleansing agent. And sin is its opposite. Have you sinned lately? I mean, sin is the kind of thing that produces guilt and regret and remorse and, as a result, distance from God and from those that we sin against. And all along comes forgiveness. and says you're free. I let it go. God says, I let it go, the things that you've done against me. And I give you life. And I give you cleansing. Now Now fly. You're free to soar. It's the most powerful thing when it comes to our identity in Christ. I mean, I don't know about you, but I I think of this stuff every day, and not just because I'm a pastor. I thought of this stuff way before I became a pastor. I thought of this after I became a Christian. The fact that this forgiveness is so key to my identity in Christ. So this week, I was reading Fox News. I read news almost every day, and, you know, I'm just kind of catching up on all the things that are happening. A lot's happening in our world right now. And I ran across one article that kind of, you know, I, I read quickly, but then I I thought about it later, and I thought, boy, that's a great illustration of what we're talking about here today. And that was, did you hear about this in the news that Christy Brinkley got a divorce, right? Did, did you all read about that? You're afraid to admit it, but every one of you follow this news story, I promise you right now, all right? And uh, Christy Brinkley got divorced from Peter Cook, and they'd been married like 13, 14 years. They got a couple of kids together, and, and they got a divorce, and this is what made it kind of juicy, because like two years ago, Peter Cook had an affair with an 18-year-old babysitter, Right? like gross, terrible, awful stuff to do, but what kind of caught me about that story was a couple of things. One, I thought, what kind of guy, and I think this in the right light, and I'm going to try to say it gently, but what kind of guy could be married to Christy Brinkley and ever want to turn his head? Men, can you like, understand that? I mean, I know some of you men are saying, no, Jamie, I don't understand that liar. You're a liar right now. You're just saying that because your wife is next to you and you don't want to admit it. But every man here today knows, and I'm trying to say it gently, that, that Christy Blink- Brinkley is blessed, okay, in some of those ways. And so, you know, the guy's married to her, and, and he has an affair with an 18-year-old kid. I mean, you've got to ask yourself, what is he thinking? I mean, why does a guy do something like that? That's the question that comes to my mind. And as you know, many of the, the guys in the media are trying to wrestle with this. And so in the article I read, it just made me sad. You know, they're interviewing Peter Cook, and he says, well, I regret that I didn't make a better decision three years ago. I'm going, duh, you regret you didn't make a better decision? And he says, you know, if I had to do it over again, I don't think I'd want to do that. And, and it's just filled with words with like regret and mistake and things like that. And I thought, you know, in all fairness, he just doesn't have a clue. He doesn't have a clue why he did what he did. He doesn't have a clue about what's really going on in his soul. And then Gerardo Rivera, of all people, as I say right, Gerardo Rivera, I mean, like, goofy guy of all the people in the world, he did a special on this. And the title of the special alone caught my eye. You know what the title was? We're all flawed. That's what he called it. We're all flawed. And I thought, now we're getting somewhere. Now you're starting to get to the core of why Peter Cook does something so insane of what he did. Now, he didn't use the word sin. Gerardo didn't. But let's insert that sin. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the Bible's answer. The Bible says that people do incredibly stupid, insane, life-destroying things because we can't help but sin before we know Christ. Try all you want. Go to all the therapy you want. Try to do everything in your personal repertoire to defend your life from sin. You will not succeed. You'll win a battle or two, but you will end up eventually doing something that brings death to your life. That's what the Bible promises. And yet the Bible also says that once you get that, once you start to understand that, and that's what made me sad about the scenario, he didn't even have a clue about that. Once you start to get that, then you're in a position to say, okay, God, now what? And God says two things. He says, one, focus on my son, focus on the sprinkling of the blood, because in that blood is cleansing and freedom. It's forgiveness for all that sin that you've committed. And then secondly, follow me. And that as you follow me, you will sin less and start to become the person that I want you to be. I mean, folks, don't ever, ever underestimate the power of our identity as followers of Jesus, as ones forgiven by him. I love how Erwin Lutzer of Moody Church put it recently. He said, and I quote, there is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. You like that? There's more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. Take that to the bank. It's true. So that means there's not one of you here today that has done something in your life that is out of the scope of God's forgiveness. Is that not good news? I mean, others around you might not forgive you. That's human. But guess what God does? And he does if you will come to him on bended knee, submitting to him, following him, laying down your life in full faith and obedience to him. He says forgiveness is then yours. And then restoration as you go on in your life is yours. It's our identity. We're exiles, focused on another place. We're chosen and elect, guarded by his sovereignty and care. And we're forgiven, cleansed and set free. This is the identity of you and I. And because we're just about out of time, I want to share with you one last thing that these opening verses of 1 Peter shares with us. And this sets up where Peter is taking us through the rest of this whole letter. It's really a great closing point. And it's simply this. And that is that the church is a group of people filled with the Holy Spirit and ready for action. You like that? We're filled with the Spirit and ready for action. Look one last time at verse 2. He says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and I get this, in the sanctification of the Spirit. And that word sanctification is like a $10 word. It simply means this, to be made holy. Set apart to be made holy. That's the technical definition. It simply refers to the fact that as we follow God in Christ Jesus, as the Spirit lives in us, over time, He's going to change us and grow us. That's what sanctification is, change and growth. And it's fascinating here because it says sanctification in the Spirit, which means that it's God's work in us, yet it is what theologians call a cooperative work. Simply meaning that as we look to him, trust him, follow him, and obey him, he promises to change us and make us more like him. But we do have to follow, obviously. And folks, that's what the rest of this series is going to be about. Namely, how and in what ways God wants to carry out his sanctification of the Spirit in and through his people, you and me, the people of God. And it's going to be quite a journey that we're embarking on. I mean, next week we're going to explore what our salvation is all about, how you can be assured that you are saved, and even what some of the evidence of our salvation is. And then we're going to talk about holiness. Peter's going to lead us into an understanding of holiness, and some of you think you know what holiness is, but let me wet your whistle. Most of us define holiness in only behavioral terms, and that's only a little part of it. The holiness of God is such a highly relational, wonderful thing. And then Peter's going to talk to us about love and how we can live a cut above the rest in our ability to love people. Then he's going to talk to us about a relationality, and then Christ-centeredness, then service and evangelism, even submission to worldly authorities around us, all key aspects of who we are, what identifies us and marks us as a people of God. And yet it's all built upon this. This is why this morning is so important. It's built upon the fact that you're in exile. Don't ever forget that. You're just a stranger passing through. You're made for another world. You're chosen loved by God, under his care and his sovereignty. Nothing can touch your soul this side of heaven as you're cradled in him, and you're forgiven, cleansed and set free from your sin by Jesus, your Savior. Don't let anybody steal your identity. They might rob you blind in your pocketbook. They might get your social security number. They might get all your credit card numbers. Big whip at the end of the day. Jesus said they can kill the body. They can't touch the soul. Let's pray. Father. I thank you that once again you've led us into a rich and deep understanding of who we are as your followers and the followers of your son Jesus. Father, there are some of us here today that need to um, turn in our understanding uh, of who we really are. We've kind of seen church as more of a social thing or maybe just as a values thing or maybe just as a program thing or a Sunday thing. So many views we have of church. Father, remind us today more than anything else that the church is the people of God. Marked by being exiles, marked by being chosen, marked by being forgiven. And then, Lord, as your spirit lives in us, guide us into further understanding of who we are as your people. Father, I know the heart of many here at Scottsdale Bible, or at least I'm getting to know their hearts. And I I know God, and this is one of the reasons I've been so excited to come back. I know, Lord, that they really mean business when it comes to being the church. We've got a lot of joy-filled, faith-filled people here. And so, Father, help us continue to live out of the identity that you've given Thank you for your care. Thank you for your goodness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you and have a great day.